0: We're continuing on in our midweek discipleship series on simplicity in life with God. And the theme verse for it is 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 4. I'm not going to read that tonight, but we are focusing on the sacredness of solitude. And I want to open with this quote from Dallas Willard in The Spirit of the Disciplines that I think sets the tone for why we even need to be thinking about this. The normal course of day-to-day human interactions locks us into patterns of feeling, thought, and action that are geared to a world set against God. Nothing but solitude can allow the development of a freedom from the ingrained behaviors that hinder our integration into God's order. So we think about spiritual disciplines generally and then uh, solitude specifically. Uh, There are a number of different ways to Categorize the spiritual disciplines traditionally and historically. Dallas Willard, who I shared the quote with you from, uh, separated the traditional spiritual disciplines into two primary classes. He talked about the disciplines of abstinence, meaning uh, solitude, getting quiet, silence, uh, fasting, uh, the absence of food, of course. Uh, frugality limiting ourselves on things that we don't really need chastity in terms of our moral purity overall using that term in a more broad sense and then secrecy and sacrifice the secrecy part being the way that he categorized it our relationship with God and our dependence on God versus self-promotion and uh, trying to get attention from other people And then sacrifice, the willingness to give of ourselves and whatever resources have been entrusted to us. And then the disciplines of engagement are the other ones that he categorized. Study, worship, celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, confession, and submission. So depending on whose list you look at when you're thinking about spiritual disciplines, you're typically going to find a number somewhere between 12 and 20. The 12 number limits it more to some of the classic disciplines that you'll see paralleled in a lot of books about spiritual disciplines, and the 20 being a little bit more broad with others adding things like meditation and confession and journaling and some things that people commonly practice. Austin Phelps wrote in the Still Hour of Communion with God, we may lay it down as an elemental principle of religion that no large growth in holiness was ever gained by one who did not take time to be alone with God. Psalm 46 and verse 10, in the translation I'm going to read from, says, Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. And then Luke 5, 5 and verse 15 and 16 says, But now even more, the report about him went abroad, speaking of Jesus, And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So we're going to look at the example of Jesus here in just a moment. But I want to begin, first of all, by answering the question what is solitude? Solitude's a word that we don't use very often, but it is one of the traditional spiritual disciplines. It can involve getting away from people in order to spend time with God, whether that's getting away for a weekend or taking a chair into your closet and closing the door so that nobody bothers you and spending time with the Lord. Essentially, it's the biblical practice of withdrawing to privacy to grow closer to God and to clear your mind so it can be filled with the mind of Christ. In one sense, it's also a state of mind and heart. So it's not just a physical location it is a state of mind an attitude a focus that brings us into the presence of God and can ultimately be practiced anywhere the point of solitude is to grow in your relationship with God it's not just to make things hard or uh, somehow to be an aesthetic or something but rather to put yourself before the Lord in humility and Believe that you're going to grow because you're near to him and and near to his word. Richard Foster said, in solitude we are freed from our bondage to people and our inner compulsions and we are freed to love God and to know compassion for others. Now one of the reasons, one of the challenges I should say that people have difficulty in implementing solitude is that often the discipline of silence goes hand in hand with it. And what solitude does is it draws us away from things that are distracting us from God, and it invites us to withdraw without all of the distracting noise. Some people are perpetually restless. They're restless with their lives. They don't have really clear rhythms because they've always got to be doing something. There's an attitude of a fear of missing out, and... One of the major challenges, I think, is because we fear getting alone and really getting quiet because when we do, we're going to be there, and we're going to learn some things about ourselves that we would not learn otherwise, so if we can keep our world constantly moving and noisy and activity and things going on, we don't have to deal with it, and there are people that Constantly have their television blaring or they've got to have earbuds in listening to something. They're just never really at rest. It's always a restlessness. Now, one of the things I want to warn you about at this point is that solitude is different from isolation or loneliness. Now, these are very different things because isolation and loneliness are the state of being alone and it wears you down, it breaks you down. In fact, it's a technique to isolate prisoners as a tactic um, and to try to break people to the point that they'll sing the news or do something that people want them to do or otherwise. Solitude is different in that it, it is the state of being alone with God. And in solitude, you're getting to know the one who created you, who redeemed you, who knows you and who loves you. There's a classic quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, We are silent at the beginning of the day because God should have the first word. And we are silent before going to sleep because the last word also belongs to God. Silence is nothing else but waiting for God's word and coming uh, from God's word with a blessing. But everybody knows that this is something that needs to be practiced and learned. Now it's amazing, people will actually pay uh, for solitude. Uh, There are those chambers where people go in and they're uh, submerged in, not submerged, they're actually floating in a highly concentrated salt solution and there is zero noise. There's one of these things up in Fairmont, I think it is. There's several around the country. And people pay good money and the reason they pay good money is because they're so overwhelmed by the noise of the world that they want to get somewhere that they can just get quiet for a moment. There's an example at a cafe in Seoul, South Korea called the Green Lab, and people actually pay for time slots to simply sit and do nothing. They, they pay to do nothing. I, I had to read that twice, but, but they do. The Green Lab requires that no one is allowed to speak and all phones are turned off. A large glass window looks out onto a green forest, and diffusers around the cafe release pleasing aromas. And every day, the three time slots that they have are completely booked. What we call uh, zoning out, uh, the Koreans call something else, and they're basically thinking about allowing their minds to be completely blank, which is the opposite of what we're going to talk about this evening, but I want to make this point. A customer in her early 30s said, I've been so tired and I don't even have time to space out. After work, I go home, I have to do housework, and then I have barely 30 minutes to an hour before I need to go to sleep. I spend that time on my phone. So with a space like this, I can actually focus on taking a break. A business owner reflected, it made space in my brain. I even read a book, enjoyed the smell of diffusers, looked at flowers, and wrote poetry. I started getting new ideas one by one, and I felt so refreshed. Now, what we know from our experience with relationships, whether it be relationships with people or our relationship with God, is that it takes time to build relationships. It can't be done in a hurry. And God created us to know him and to be in a relationship with him. And there are multiple examples in the scripture of God meeting with people, whether it be Moses at the burning bush or Moses on Mount Sinai Or David communing with God when he's running from his enemies and yet he's finding time to focus in on the Lord. Or Elijah, as I'll reference a little bit later, experiencing God's presence in the cave. So that's what solitude is. Solitude is not getting quiet in a way to empty ourselves, but rather to fill ourselves with God and his word and the power of his spirit. Now, if you know anything about meditation, there's a parallel here on the meditation part as well. And I'll talk about meditation in another week before I'm done with this series. But meditation in an Eastern sense is empty in your mind. And the problem with Eastern meditation, well, there's a lot of problems with Eastern meditation, but one of the main problems with Eastern meditation is that it's empty in your mind, but then your mind can be filled with all sorts of things that are not helpful and are not holy. Christian meditation, biblical meditation, is filling your mind with the mind of Christ, with the truth of God's Word, with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and it's a fullness rather than an emptiness. And I want you to think tonight about solitude not being an emptiness either, but rather it being a fullness of our relationship with God. Now, what role did solitude play in the life of Jesus This is important because Jesus is our example. Nobody's ever been busier than Jesus. I mean, you think you're busy and you think you've got people wanting to talk to you, whatever your job is or whatever your responsibilities in life are. Nobody's ever been busier and more in demand than Jesus was in his earthly life. Yet in the midst of that busyness, he practiced healthy patterns of life that can apply to any period of time and into the modern age as well. And Jesus intentionally prioritized his time with the Father. And there's several ways that solitude played a role in the life of Jesus that I want to point out from the scripture. First of all, Jesus practiced solitude in preparation for ministry. This would parallel with us if we're preparing to do something for the Lord we've been called to a specific task or we're taking on a particular ministry role or there's something that we feel like we're embarking on to be able to be uh, faithful in the kingdom, then we might want to practice solitude as Jesus did. The passage of Scripture here is Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. It says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him context is after jesus was baptized at the outset of his public ministry he was led specifically the bible says by the holy spirit into the wilderness and he spent 40 days there there he was tempted by the devil now it seems like an unlikely place for the devil to show up instead of jesus merely having a time of contemplation he found himself in the midst of this intense spiritual battle This intense spiritual warfare. And it was focused on power and pride and presumption. And what the devil was trying to do was to short-circuit the ministry of Jesus at its very outset because he knew the purpose for which he had come. The first temptation concerned the lust of the flesh when he was tempted to turn the stones into bread. You remember Jesus quoted scripture in his defense as he was tempted. The second temptation concerned the pride of life. The devil tried to use the scriptures, but Jesus once again defended himself. The third temptation concerned the lust of the eyes. He was tempted to bypass the cross and prematurely assert his possession of the kingdoms of the world. What did Jesus do? Once again, he appealed to scripture to overcome the temptation. Now, in a broader statement, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted at every point as we are, yet he was without sin. So his temptations were real. Uh, He experienced them in his humanity and in his deity, yet he was without sin, which in part was what qualified him to be able to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus also practiced solitude in his regular devotion. So it wasn't just in preparation for a big time of ministry but it was in his devotion and his communion with the Father. Mark 1 and verse 35 says very early in the morning while it was still dark he got up, went out and made his way to a deserted place and there he was praying. Leading up to that Jesus had taught in the synagogue at Capernaum. He had healed a demon possessed man who interrupted his teaching. He had healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law from a fever he administered to as many people as could make their way to him and yet he still found time to commune with the Father. Now there's not a law or rule that says that our time with God on a regular rotation has to be in the morning but I find that it's a lot like physical exercise the later I wait in the day the harder it is to get it done spiritually in your walk with God if you start your day on the right note even if you spend time later on when you have more time but yet you have a time in the morning where you're starting your day with God it's going to set the tone for everything else and Jesus is an example of that time with God is the key to spiritual growth now, if you don't have anything else to take away tonight, this is your takeaway. Time with God is the key to spiritual growth. If you are not spending time with God in prayer and in the Word, you're not going to grow. It's just that simple. But if you're spending time with God in prayer and in the Word, you will grow because the Holy Spirit will shape you, the Word will guide you, and God will make you to be more like Jesus. So Jesus found a regular time to be alone with the father it was an intentional priority built into his day uh, and he made it something that was central to his earthly life and ministry he also found a place he had to find a place where he could be alone so he found a desolate place to recharge and the word that references him finding that deserted place means a solitary lonely uninhabited place Now, I know that's hard to find, but that's what Jesus practiced. Jesus had a plan. He prayed. He didn't waste his time. And Jesus demonstrated persistence because he practiced this regularly. This was an ongoing thing that he did. Now, one of the beautiful things about your relationship with God is that some days in in your time with him are going to be more full than others. And there's certain things we're distracted or we, maybe we don't feel real good one day or, or there are other things that are pressing in on us or we, we miss a time or whatever the case might be. And yet God's patient with us because he wants us to grow in our relationship with him. So don't let the ups and the downs keep you from your relationship with the Lord. Don't let the spiritual enemy convince you that if you've been slack for a day or maybe even for a period of time, that it's not important, doesn't matter, you've already gotten this far, what's the point? And don't let days turn into weeks or even months. Jesus practiced solitude to recharge. When he was drained from ministry, he would take time to recharge and tried to do the same with his disciples. Mark chapter 6 and verse 30 says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. And then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Do you take time to recharge in your walk with the Lord? Uh, it may not be where you're able to get away for an extended period of time, but maybe you can take a, a walk for an hour. You can get somewhere where you can get quiet before the Lord and recharge when, when you're tired. You see, one of the things of our vulnerabilities as Christians is that when we are weary and we're spent, that's when we're the most vulnerable. In fact, the devil specializes in taking us when we're tired, when we're spent from serving other people, doing good things, uh, being involved in the activity of the Lord, that's when he comes in and tries to take advantage. So one of the best things that you can do in your walk with God in terms of, of overcoming temptation is to stay rested and strong spiritually and physically so that you can withstand the onslaught of the spiritual warfare that comes through temptation and then jesus practiced solitude before major decisions we find the clearest example being when jesus chose the apostles how many would there be how should he prepare them in luke chapter 6 and verse 12 and 13 says one day soon afterward jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to god all night and at daybreak, he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. I would remind you within that 12 was Judas. And Jesus knew full well uh, what was coming. For us, we often make decisions and then present them to God and ask God to bless the decisions. I've done that from time to time. And it takes discipline to focus in on prayer it it takes persistence to pray like jesus did i mean this is the son of god in the flesh and he's praying all night before a major decision spending the entire night in solitude and prayer and then the pattern was after he went up on the mountain he came down from the mountain and he acted on his decision and we can get clarity and direction as we serve the lord as well There's a station at the South Pole called the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. It sits about two miles, uh, on about two miles of glacial ice at the bottom of the world. It's said to be one of the remotest places on the planet, more than 800 miles from the nearest human beings. A small group of 50 to 150 people gather there to support scientific research that's done by the United States Antarctic Program. Brett Badorf was a man who was commissioned as a missionary to the others who were going to be there. He expected to find that the silence and the solitude of the South Pole, which was a totally different experience, would rattle his connection with Christ. He was very concerned about what it was going to be like. Instead, he discovered what he now calls the blessings of solitude. And here's what he said. I should have known better. Christ frequently withdrew to desolate places like the desert, often at night. So while our environment elicits plenty of side effects and moments of tension over time, Christians especially here have leaned into, rather than away from, solitude. None of the Christians here feel called to spend the rest of their lives in the desert. Antarctica is uh, technically a desert with little precipitation. He said, but it's impossible to deny the benefits of a season set apart. If anything, it would help to remove a few more of the amenities here, at least if a goal of coming here were fostering spiritual growth. In the modern, non Antarctic world, it can be difficult to find places to be alone. And we are surrounded by real and virtual community through good portions of our days. When we do need to set apart moments of meditation with God, Knowing how to handle stillness can be almost as challenging as finding it. I want to spend the balance of the time that I have on this question What spiritual fruit should we expect through solitude? We've considered now the definition of solitude, what it is and what it isn't. We've thought about how solitude was practiced in the life and the ministry of Jesus, and how we might learn from that in our own practice. And now we'll consider what spiritual fruit we should expect through solitude. First is that solitude helps us overcome the distractions of life. Psalm 86 and verse 11 says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Blaise Pascal, who lived in the 17th century, said, All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. There's a lot of truth to that, maybe a little bit of humor as well. But we live in what has been referred to as the age of distraction. Life in modernity is a continual experience of distractions. And when so many things vie for our attention... The ability to maintain focus is compromised. In some ways I think the 21st century has has broken our brains and limited our attention spans because of the massive distractions that we encounter. But the reality is this is not a new problem. Just 15 years ago the then CEO of Google said every two days we create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization until 2003. I want you to put that into perspective. This was 15 years ago, and he's saying every two days our culture creates as much information, our world creates as much information as did all of history leading up to 2003. He said, I spend most of my time assuming that the world is not ready for the technology revolution that will be happening soon. That's somewhat prophetic. He said, and what he said is true because we're now living in the middle of it. Every day currently, this is a current statistic, 2.5 quintillion bytes of data are created and the pace is accelerating. I don't even know what quintillion is, but it's a lot. And Google now has 3.5 billion searches every single day. Day. Every minute of the day, users watch 4,146,600 YouTube videos. Every minute. Every minute, 16 million text messages are sent. 5 billion photos are taken each day. And just to think, my generation was happy to have a few pictures that somebody thought enough to print out and maybe put an album somewhere. This is actually though not just a characteristic of our age. The Roman philosopher Seneca was worried about the same thing. He was worried about technologies degrading our ability to function. Here's what he said. He complained in the first century that the multitude of books is a distraction. By the 12th century, the Chinese philosopher Zhu Xi commented on the distraction of print and here's what he said the reason people today read sloppily is that there are a great many printed texts. and then in the 14th century the Italian poet Petrarch said believe me this is not nourishing the mind with literature but killing and burying it with the weight of things so the 21st century has raised anxieties about all of these things in in the volume of what we're encountering. There's an article entitled, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Have smartphones Ruined a generation? Your attention didn't collapse. It was stolen. So people are concerned about this, but maybe they don't know what to do about it or how to respond to it, especially if they're not Christians. Well, Psalm 86 is classified as a psalm of lament. A lament psalm, Uh, expresses the individual pain of a person in their present condition and seeks deliverance from god the psalmist prayed give me an undivided heart there's a simple confidence that god's going to bring it about one translation of this give me an undivided heart is unite my heart to fear your name another is make my heart focused only on honoring your name Or put me together, one heart and mind, then undivided, I'll worship in joyful fear. Or finally, grant me purity of heart so that I may honor you. The word undivided means separated or broken into parts. It's not mixed with other feelings or with other attention. Throughout the history of Israel, they were prone to hearts that wondered. Is there a more clear reason why God told them in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5 that they were to love the Lord their God with all their heart with all their soul with all their strength Jesus repeated that in the first and greatest commandment and then we're to love our neighbor as ourself time and again Israel fell short and God would call them back he would give them his grace and mercy and call them back to himself but you know he also promised that he would give a new heart that's the promise of the gospel that's the hope of the new covenant in Jesus. So for us, the miracle of an undivided heart occurs at salvation when a transformation takes place, and we're empowered by God to follow him. So David's desire to unite his heart in fear of God is similar to what Paul wrote in first Corinthians seven and verse thirty five live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. You remember the story that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13 of a man who went out to sow seed? It's a parable, but it parallels some of this. Some of the seed fell on the path, some on the stony ground, some on uh, the, in the midst of the thorns, and then some on the good ground. Jesus explained that the four responses represented Uh, the responses to the message of the kingdom of god and let's focus for a moment on the seed among the thorns other seed fell among the thorns and it says it grew up and choked the plants and then we get the explanation in verse 22 the one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word but listen to this the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it making it unfruitful that's what happens to all too many people is that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the seed that is supposed to be growing in our lives and what we need is we need we need a vertical vision we need the antidote for the preoccupation that we have with Horizontal thoughts of life in this world that drag us down, and we need this vertical vision so, in other words, instead of focusing on our problems and on our distractions, we need to be focusing on the problem solver and the one who is guiding us in all things and instead of looking horizontally all the time in a sense that what we can see on the earthly plane, we are making an intentional choice to set the eyes of our hearts vertically looking at heavenly things and these things are eternal and forever an undivided heart has a single focus it's a heart that beats for the glory of god so solitude helps us overcome the distractions of life the second fruit is that solitude helps us recognize our limitations we look now at job chapter 14 and verse 5 and 6 since a person's days are determined and the number of his months depends on you, and since you have set limits he cannot pass, look away from him and let him rest so that he can enjoy his day like a hired worker. Here's Job. You know the backstory. I won't spend time right now on retelling the whole backstory. But Job spoke of the frailty of people in general, and he considers the brevity of life. And he speculates on what will happen after this life. Now, we don't know how long specifically that job lived but what we do know is that life is short and our days are determined by god life is bookended with time limits that we cannot go beyond it's inevitable psalm 39 in verse 4 says lord make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days let me know how transient i am or psalm 90 in verse 2 says teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom brevity means shortness of time and eternity means unending time someone assigned an acrostic to this with the word time t being time i being impacts m being my and then e being eternity time impacts my eternity or we might think it about another way you've heard people say before that you're not really ready to live until you're you're not really, really ready to die until you learn how to live And there's some truth to that because if if our focus is not in the right place, we're not prepared for what's going to come. James Smith wrote in What is Life, he said, Our life is the bud of being. The flower will not open on this side of the grave. Our life is the youth of existence. We shall not be full grown in this world. Our life is the seed time of eternity. What is sown now will be reaped in an eternal, changeless state. Our life is the introduction of... To immortality. Now, even if we make it a hundred years, and most of us simply won't, we have an expiration date on this earth and an appointment with God. Some will die young, some will die old, some will die very old. But ultimately that's not going to be up to us. And when we get alone with God and we realize the truth of His Word, then we can recognize our limitations. And when we recognize our limitations, it's not a frustrating recognition of our limitations, but it's an opening of our eyes to the reality of all that Jesus is preparing for us. There's a big difference because the world sees things as hopeless and people are clamoring. All they're worried about is how much longer can they live and what can they do while they're living and they got the fear of missing out and all that goes along with it and it feeds into that restlessness. There's something I got to get done. I'm just restless all the time. When I calm myself before the Lord, I realize he's the maker of the heavens and the earth, and I am fully dependent on him, and every day that I have is a blessing. We need to learn to practice the presence um, of God in our lives as we recognize our limitations. And that brings me to the third fruit. Solitude helps us draw closer to God. It helps us draw closer to God. Now, the verse here is James four and verse eight. You know it, but it says, Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The other part of that is uh, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. So it's not by accident that drawing near to God and purifying our hearts and cleansing our hands goes hand goes hand in hand, so to speak, because who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Psalm 24, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So if we're going to spend time in solitude and purposefully seek after God and know him, then in essence, we got to get closer to God. That's what James is saying. How we get closer to God is important, but it starts with a desire for surrender and holiness. And we learn to practice the presence of God. There was a man named Brother Lawrence who lived in the 17th century. He desired to experience the presence of God. He wrote a book that is a classic entitled Practicing the Presence of God. He was originally a soldier who became wounded and he witnessed the horrors of war which caused him to contemplate the magnificence of God's grace. He took the role of a dishwasher and a cook after that in a French monastery of all places. Through continuous conversations with God, he said that he found joy and fulfillment in even the simplest of things. And he was a monk for 40 years. I'm not suggesting that we become monks. What I am suggesting, however, is that we need to submit ourselves to God in a very intentional way, with purpose, desiring to draw closer to him. Let me say it to you this way. I often say that people are just as spiritual as they want to be. You're just as spiritual as you want to be. You're just as informed about the Bible as you want to be. And you're just as close to God as you want to be. So if you feel like you're not close to God, you're not feeling that proximity of the communion. God didn't move. He's the same. He's unchanging. But something in your life drew you to a place where you're not as close to Him as you were. So to draw closer to God, confess your sins, stay prayed up, make sure that there's nothing that is hindering your fellowship with God. To draw closer to Him, ask Him to examine your heart and your motives and your actions. And we look at an undivided heart already. James also references a double-minded person that is drawn in two directions and he says listen you got to guard against that and what solitude does is it helps us draw closer to god how close are you to god how close do you want to be with god if there's a gap in between that you can simply start with a prayer of surrender and say lord i want to be closer to you i want to draw near i want to be in close communion with you and when you spend time doing that that's a prayer that god will honor the fourth fruit is that solitude helps us hear the word and the spirit now galatians 5 and verse 25 if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit we're so blessed as christians we have the word of god and the indwelling holy spirit in our lives we are to submit to the word and the will of god and submit to the spirit and when he says here that we are to be in step with the spirit that's indicating a walk with god in which we make consistent forward progress i believe that the normal christian life should be the spirit-filled life It's not just for the super Christian. There's not even such a thing. We're all saints covered by the blood, but our normal life should be the experience of a spirit-filled life. And you'll remember that Galatians 5 in the big picture is emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit and we're united with Him and we're bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And when you rely on the Holy Spirit, He will guide your thoughts. He will guide your words. He will guide your actions. And it's important that... We focus in, in solitude, on the Word and on the Spirit. Now, I referenced Elijah earlier, and in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah had experienced a great victory over the prophets of Baal. Remember I told you that one of the times when we're the most vulnerable is when we are tired or we're coming off of a great victory or some other success for the Lord. And this is recorded in 1 Kings 18. You remember Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, the king of Israel, was seeking to kill him, and he ran into the wilderness, and he collapsed in exhaustion. And what did God do? God sent an angel with food and water to strengthen him. Uh, He told him to rest, and he sent him to Horeb. And in the cave there, he complains that all the prophets of God had been killed, and he was all alone. You ever felt like that? Lord, I'm the last one. Who's being faithful. I must be the last Christian in the whole area. I must be the last Christian in the whole state. And he start coming up with these ideas that are so far from reality. And that's what Elijah was doing. So God told him to stand on the mountain in his presence. You remember God sent a mighty wind which broke the rocks in pieces? Now we always jump to the still small voice, but let me just say if there's a wind that breaks the rocks to pieces, that's going to wake you up to begin with. So he sent the wind, and then he sent an earthquake and a fire, but his voice was in none of them. And after that, the Lord spoke to Elijah in the still, small voice. I imagine it as a gentle whisper. And the point is that the work of God is often not in a dramatic revelation or manifestation, but you can experience and hear from the Lord through his word and his spirit when you draw near to him. In fact, when you pick up the Word of God and you submit to the Holy Spirit, you will hear the voice of God. If you want to hear the voice of God out loud, read the Bible, because that's His Word. And one of the things we can do, I think, is spend a lot of time in places like the Psalms in our solitude, because it's just pattern for worship and pouring out our heart before the Lord. And solitude helps us hear the Word and the Spirit. Now the fifth and final fruit is that solitude helps us renew physical and spiritual strength. Isaiah 40 and verse 31 says, Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God gives a great promise of strength for the weary, a strength that might be compared to mounting up as an eagle or running without fatigue. The Context is the Israelites were worn down after having lived in exile in babylon for an extended period of time i think they were probably in a position where they're thinking i don't we don't know if we can be helped or not and isaiah uses a coupling of words here a pair of words in faith and weary and he uses it three times from verse 27 to 31 they were weak in body and in spirit and we know that even in our prime that we have limits And we know that it's not endless. We have to admit that we need strength. And here he says, "...they shall mount up with wings like eagles." This is really important. The eagle illustration is a powerful illustration because the ancient Hebrew culture revered eagles as mighty warriors that also cared fiercely for their young. Eagles would carry their eaglets to safety away from predators, and they're known for their strength and their power and soaring to safety. And the Lord references eagles' wings in Exodus 19, recalling how God delivered Israel from the Egyptians. And here, the great characteristics of eagles are applied to all who remain faithful and look to God. So here's the encouragement I got for you this evening. God will give you the strength that you need when you need it. And when you draw close to him in solitude, you'll be able to draw that renewal both in physical and spiritual strength. Part of this is victory over temptation and sin also. Did Jesus not say, watch and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation? And that's what we should do. Solitude helps us renew physical and spiritual strength. And in conclusion, I believe that God will reward us for time spent alone with him. I have one final quote here from Henry Nouwen. He was somewhat of a mystic. There's some controversy surrounding his life and some other things, but I think this is a fitting quote, and he certainly practiced this. To live a spiritual life, we must first find the courage to enter into the desert of our loneliness and to change it by gentle and persistent efforts into a garden of solitude. The movement from loneliness to solitude, however, is the beginning of any spiritual life. Because it is the movement from the restless senses to the restful spirit. From the outward reaching cravings to the inward reaching search. From the fearful clinging to the fearless play. Without solitude it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. By way of practical application, and in closing, I want to encourage you: if you need to improve in your practice of solitude, to identify a place. Again, it might be something as simple as your closet or your bathroom. If that's what you got, might be something better as the weather improves. Nice walk at right Hour or somewhere else. But you got to identify a place. It could be different places, but you got to find a place. You got to find a time. For most of us on the daily rotation, the morning works the best. But again, I am not going to be legalistic about it as long as you're spending time with the Lord in the spirit of it. That's what's important. Take your Bible. You don't need your phone. You don't need any other distractions. You don't need your earbuds. You don't need music playing. You just need your Bible. And when you go, pray. Just ask the Lord to help you learn how to pray, learn from the Lord's Prayer. Whatever it takes, pray. And you've got to start somewhere. If you're looking at me like tonight like this is all new territory, I, this is not something I normally practice, then challenge yourself to take five minutes over the next seven days and get in a completely quiet place and do so with the purpose of communion with God. Maybe you're just going to read a psalm or a portion of a psalm. You're going to read something, about the life of Jesus, whatever it is, and just discipline yourself to take some time every day, even if it's a short snippet, and get started. If you'll draw near to God, God will draw near to you. Remember what I told you earlier, your takeaway. It is impossible to grow spiritually unless you're spending time alone with God. It's not going to